Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Ms. Lisa Selvaraja. Lisa is a speech therapist who works with neurodiverse children and their families. She came to the cafe to share the importance of understanding and embracing different communication methods for non-speaking children, the benefits of neurodiverse affirming therapy, and tips for working with a speech therapist. Grab your warm drink and tune in for a great conversation. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for being here. Could you please introduce yourself? Thank you, first of all, for having me. I love your podcast and I'm very honored to be here. My name is Lisa Salvaraja. I'm a speech and language pathologist. That's what it says on my degree, but I prefer to just call myself a speech therapist without the pathologizing aspect. Saying pathologist seems to just integrate us more smoothly into the medical field, but I don't know how deeply I want to invest in, in that discussion. I just know that I enjoy the therapy part of it. I'm a wife and mother. I enjoy therapy in both directions, offering it, receiving it. I find music very therapeutic. So I love to sing. I play piano. I perform. I'm a part of the Montreal Steppers. Uh, I own a company called Montreal Speech Therapy. I co-host a podcast called The Bold SLP. And I just finished offering a course with The Bold SLP called Strategies to Prevent Harm in Bilingual and Multicultural Evaluations. And it's going to be offered next summer again, I think, if anyone's interested in taking that course. And we're doing a brief version of it at the upcoming ASHA convention in November. ASHA meaning the American Speech and Hearing Association. You're leading a very full life and I love it. And the honor is mine to have you on this podcast. I'm really delighted. Can you please tell us what a speech language therapist is? What do you do? We're communication specialists. At the base of it, that's what we are. We assess, we analyze, we intervene, we do coaching for prevention, and we work with all ages. So it depends on what demographic your specific speech therapist work with. But for me specifically, I work with from maybe two all the way to 40. How would someone know that they need to call you? What typically triggers that I might need help in this domain? Usually a professional would tell a parent. A teacher might notice something in school or a doctor might notice something during a, a regular checkup. So most of my referrals come from other professionals. And then there's a small subset of parents that are just worried about their kid because they're comparing their child to like a cousin or a nephew or someone around the same age. So that's how the referrals happen. How would they know? There's supposed to be some kind of communication. Now, because we're talking about different age groups, okay? So right now we'll just talk about parents and children. But if you're not receiving any communication at all from your child or you're not feeling any kind of, say, reciprocation, but the word, then, yeah, I would check with a professional. Because the expectation has to be typical. Like, you can't expect, like, a newborn just coming out to say hello to you. But I would say around three when there's like a language explosion and all kinds of words are coming out and sentences are forming around that time if you're not seeing anything i would ask a professional why did you choose this specialty yeah i didn't know it existed actually and um i met 
uh, a deaf person who taught me sign language. And I, it was just an extraordinary experience. I mean, I'm in a hearing world. They're in a deaf, silent world. And we spoke different languages. I spoke English. He used ASL. And somehow he got us to communicate with each other. And I was like, I wonder if there's a field that can like bridge the gap between people who just can't seem to communicate. I didn't know it was going to end up me like doing a lot of parent coaching and this kind of thing. I really thought I was going to work with the deaf community, but I just go where I need it. So that's where the need was, parents and children. The deaf community, that evidently is one type of demographic that uses the services of a speech language therapist. What other types of demographics or people would need this? There's a little bit of controversy there because there's deaf pride. So there is the deaf community that is fine using sign language and they communicate fine with each other. They have interpreters that they need to communicate with a hearing person. So there was a lot of pushback in the day that deaf people need to learn how to speak or integrate into the hearing world. But it needs to go both ways. And that was what my deaf friend taught me. I mean, we met at church and we were in a church where everybody was praying for this boy to be healed, for this boy's ears to open, for this boy to become hearing. And I thought that was a noble prayer because I was like, he should be just like us. And I remember one day in Sunday school, he was helping me. The kids loved him. He was so hilarious and so much fun and always made himself understood. Everybody knew what he meant, even though he never used words. And so we were taking prayer requests. For those of you who don't go to church, that's when you raise your hand and say, I would like God to help me with my homework, whatever. So one little boy his prayer request was to open my friend's ears. And so I signed it to him and he was like, open my ears? And then he was like, why? And I said, oh, he wants you to be hearing. And he was like, oh, no, thank you. (laughs) He signed to me, I'm fine the way I am. I love being deaf. I think that the world is peaceful, it's quiet. And, you know, he's like, I have friends, I go to school. I mean, It was eye-opening for me. This is like a bunch of five, six, seven-year-olds hearing this for the first time. And I'm, I was what, 18 or 19? And I'm like, of course, he's fine. So yeah, I mean, some deaf people have, because there's a whole, there's a whole uh, spectrum of it. So there's deaf, there's hard of hearing. Some of them have a little bit of like residual hearing, some have cochlear implants, you know? So some do want to learn more oral speech, but not all of them. So. I would never want to impose on the deaf community, like, I'm a speech pathologist, use me, you know? It's like, (laughs) if you need anything, I'm here. That's a great story. I love that. So then what are some of the common issues that you treat, if that's the right term? So I work right now with a lot of autistic children. So they communicate differently from your neurotypical kids. Sometimes they're perceived as rude because they're direct and they just ask the question. But in in the world that we live in, everything is nuanced. Nothing is simple. Someone says something and you overthink it and you're not sure what they meant by this, this, this. So for example, a child will ask the teacher, an, an autistic child will say, what time is class done? And the teacher will assume that they don't like the class, they're bored, they want it to end. But the child is directly asking, I would like a time because I just want to know. Like they're just asking the question that they're asking. So there's a lot of communication differences between the neurodivergent world and the neurotypical world. So I work a lot with that. 
I work with non-speaking children, and sometimes that's just counseling families to accept that their child is not using mouth words, but is definitely trying to communicate by pointing, with pictures, with devices, sign language, you know, like there's so many different ways to communicate outside of just words. And it's hard for parents because they're thinking, well, I'm bringing them to a speech therapist, so they need to teach them speech. And I'm like, I can't force your child to do something that they either cannot do or they're not interested in doing at this moment. What my ultimate goal is, is to help your child communicate. And it needs to go both ways. I can't imagine if when my deaf friend was teaching me sign language, I like put his hands down. I'm like, well, you need to learn how to talk. Can you imagine? Like, where would that have gone? That's really such a cool story. Let's go back to the autistic example that you gave of, you know, a child will just say directly, what time is the class then? So if you're working with someone like that in your session, what would a session look like? So often I'm online. So uh, it was during COVID that I really like realized like how passionate I am about this population because for the longest time, the intervention for autistic kids was compliance-based, obedient. You know, I say this, you do this. Like literally one of our goals was following directions. So I say this, you do this. So it was about stopping their agenda and having them follow our agenda. Ours meaning the parents, therapists, the teachers. So a big shift was learning what their agenda is and why. And that really helps bridge that communication. So in therapy during COVID, we'll say, I'll be doing an activity with a child and the parent will be right with them and right next to them. And every time a child would change the topic or be like, I have sunglasses in my room or something they want to show me, the parent would right away say, we're not talking about that right now. Focus on Lisa. And I learned through all the neurodiverse affirming strategies that are out there now because the autistic community has spoken up, that little distraction will actually help them regulate. If you just let them go and grab their glasses, it's probably completely related to the activity that we're doing, but we just don't see it yet because they're not communicating clearly. Oh, when you mentioned your cat, there was this episode of Garfield where he put sunglasses on and I just really, they don't have all that language yet. So the only thing they have to go off of is this thing that seems super tangential to the parent and to the therapist. So often it's me encouraging the parent to just listen and ride this wave for now because I'm sure something interesting is coming that's fully related to what we're doing. And your goal of having the focus, focus, focus is is actually like reducing their regulation and making them more and more frustrated. And then it turns into a tantrum. And it's much harder to to come back from that. So a lot of the therapy is literally just like understanding the child and trying to figure out why they're doing what they're doing. And yeah, there there was this one little girl where the dad was just on her. Like every time she put her hand, I don't know, you can't see me if you're listening to this uh, podcast, but every time she kind of like put her face in the palm of her hand, which may have looked like I'm bored. I didn't take it that way at all. I'm like, she's probably tired or this is probably a more comfortable position for her. Her dad would be like, put your hands on the table. Random things like that. So just like always in trouble, always kind of being barked at. And 
just telling dad like, oh, I'm okay if her hand is that way. Even having the child feel like, whoa, someone's on my side. This is crazy. <laughs> it just, just like empowers them. And I have to talk a lot with parents because I know that they all want the best for them and they don't want them to get into any trouble outside the house. That's the real thing. In the real world, people are not going to accept this. People are not going to whatever. But if you teach them that the way that they are is okay and will give them the language. I know my my hand is here on my cheek, but I'm very, very interested. I just feel a little tired now. You give them that kind of language instead of just shutting it down altogether. So a lot of times it's me observing what they're doing and what these quote-unquote distractions are, and then giving them the language to explain themselves to others in the real world, when people apparently will never understand them. Or giving the parents the language to use it when they're advocating for their child outside of the home. And you have it when you have autistic kids that have a hard time sitting down, or they're spinning around, or they have different kinds of stims that regulates them that seems a little off to the neurotypical world. You have parents say, oh, my son is autistic, he needs to spin. Or you have those parents who advocate, but then you have others who are just really ashamed. And they're like, oh, let's just go back inside. Let's just go, you know, and then kids are deprived of park time, outside time, mall time. So I'm really pushing on the advocacy. That's what my therapy looks like now, as opposed to what it used to look like, which was very compliance and repetitive. And it's more fun, honestly, just getting to know kids and meeting them where they're at. That sounds really, really interesting and kind of fun, I have to say, just listening to it. And it sounds like there's a lot of value in having the parents in the session because um, as you're describing, it sounds like you're not only working with the child, but you're working with the parent to help them both understand the situation. Is that yeah. common that the parent is typically in the session? In private practice, it is. And in, okay. and in private practice, it's possible. I know in the schools, you're alone with the child. So often it's more academic. So it's more they're having trouble communicating with their peers or... They're having trouble with English class. They don't understand a story or they don't know how to organize an essay. So it, it looks very different in the school. But if I do get kids who are autistic in the classroom, especially the younger ones, kindergarten, grade one, I no longer take them out of class to do compliance-based therapy. I go into the classroom and I model for all the kids how to understand your autistic peer because it's always been in one direction where the autistic child has to fit in with the other kids. But it's so much easier for the other, you know, able-bodied, practicing kids to learn empathy. Yeah. That seems to be a direction where both will benefit. I love that. That makes total sense. So tell me about your parent coaching. Is it what you just described to me with explaining to the parent why the child might put their face in their hand? Or is that some a separate type of work? Yeah, that's a good question. So Parent coaching is separate. So sometimes I have just the parents and not the child. And they'll just tell me about the day and how it's going. And sometimes we have kids who are very attached to their parents and it will take them long to develop a relationship with a therapist. So if parents, let's say, don't have enough insurance or they only have like four or five sessions, I don't know how beneficial it is for them to spend three or four sessions of the child just trying to get to know me and be comfortable with me. I'd rather spend the time coaching parents on what they can do at home based on the things that I know have worked. So right now I have that as an offer as well, just specific parent coaching. Then there's also like parent coaching within the direct session. 
So that's the one I was telling you about earlier, where I'm working with the child, but the parent is next to the child. I don't know how much I love when the parents are there all the time, because sometimes they can't help it. This is what was done to them when they were kids, right? They were never allowed to step out of line or yawn at the table. I mean, little things, burp, like physiological things that just like naturally happen and you get in trouble for. Yeah, my, my daughter, not to go off on a tangent, but my daughter threw up the other day in the car and it was such a mess. And she was like, oh no, mommy. And I'm like, that's okay. You know, we stopped and I helped her out. And then she was like, I can help you clean it. But I, I noticed in her that she was more trying to explain that she wasn't feeling well as opposed to apologize for vomiting. Whereas when I was a kid, I'd be like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I know the car is dirty now. And it was like apologizing for something that I had no control over. Like who chooses to throw up in the car? Right. Nobody. So that little shift of like, I guess maybe healing our inner child. That's a big one for me because so many parents themselves were traumatized. And although they're trying to be better for their kids, uh, some of that is just seeping through because you have to do the work. You have to unlearn a lot of things. It doesn't just happen because you will it. And even me moving from compliance-based therapy to neurodiverse-affirming therapy was a huge shift. And it was there was like a mourning period of like, all of these templates I created are no good. Like I spent years putting together templates so that when I wrote reports, I barely had to write anything because I had, oh, this kid was like that kid. Boom. This kid was like that kid. I, and all no good anymore. You know, the language that we use now in our reports, so much more respectful, not all negative, like child can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. It's like child is learning how to do this and progressing in this area. If the child is not talking, I don't know how many times in a report I have to repeat, like non-speaking, you know, like mm-hmm. the parent knows. And one mother told me, it's so disheartening getting these 20 page reports on all the things my child can't do. And also it's not new information for me. Like, I don't really know who they're writing it for, but I already knew all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's really empathetic of you. But on that point, actually, Isn't the report then for government or some department that can help pay for sessions or help the child get the things that they need in school? So, yes, that's the best way the language is like that, right? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. So the report doesn't have to be so many pages focusing on that. It could just be a, a couple lines of what the child can't do and then focusing on what the child can do and what the next step up is from that moment. So yes, the report is for a couple of people. So the report is to me for the parent first and foremost. That's my number one goal. And then from there, I have to tweak a little bit of language to make sure the government accepts it for funding for the family and other professionals accept it to take them on the list. Mm -hmm. So a doctor or a psychologist or another speech therapist. It's the content that matters. It's the quality that matters. What I really was struck by was how you can convey your point without necessarily diminishing people or hurting their feelings more. Maybe hurting their feelings is not the word, but making them feel further stressed about a situation they're already stressed. It's it's hurting them. It's hurting them. It's making them feel small. It's hiding behind medical jargon. That's why I even remove pathologist from my title whenever I can, you know? 
for the order for my card. I need the whole thing. But yeah, I know that. And I've been very open about this. Like when I was a starting speech therapist 10 years ago, I wanted to sound smart. I wanted to sound as smart as the other medical professionals around me. I was using the biggest word possible, the scientific words, the correct terms, because I'm a professional. But who was that helping? I would have to spend double the time explaining a report to a parent because half the words are illegible to them. It just, it did not make sense. And even IP, I don't know, none of the universities are going to come at me. But like phonetic transcription, like writing like the sound that the child made in like IPA, where nobody knows how to read that except other speech therapists. Let's just write it in English. Like the child said sip for ship mm. instead of the sound. I, could, I just write SH because the parent knows what that means. I mean, unless I want to spend an extra hour explaining the IPA system and what that new alphabet looks like. Yeah. It just seems silly. If I'm a researcher and I'm talking to other scientists, then yeah, we could all use the same language. But if you're talking to parents and you're interested in them understanding what you're saying and breaking it down, break it down. I learned from my friend who just finished up her PhD that one of the things they have to do for their final presentation is to use, I think she said layman's terms. I don't know if that's the term she used, but to break down all of your scientific research into a way that like anyone can understand. And she said, that is the hardest part of the whole presentation is breaking down all of it. And I was like, oh, that's my favorite part. She's like, I know. She's like, you would nail that part. I was like, I'd probably have a hard time with the first part using all the those medical terms. I'm right with you on that one. Are there any myths and misconceptions that you think are important to spell about each language thing? About the therapy itself, that the therapist's job is to force your child to talk. That's a big one. So many (laughs) haters on Facebook are like, if you're helping kids silently communicate, then what do you even do as a speech therapist? You know, like, why do you (laughs) call yourself a speech therapist? I'm like, because I'm a communication specialist. Speech and language pathology is just the title that the university has given us. So that's a big one. If you come in with the expectation that I want my child to talk, I don't think that's an appropriate expectation. I think I would love for parents to come in and be like, I wish I could understand my child. I wish I knew what my child was thinking. I wish I knew what they wanted. I wish I could connect with my child better. Yeah, so that's the big one. If you're coming to a speech therapist to force your child to talk, that's... To me, that's a big myth. That's not what I want to do. I mean, I will model sounds and I will do all the things. And I also want them to function well in this world and to not have it so difficult for them because the world is very ableist and there's a certain kind of prototype that moves smoothly in the world. You know, and anything off of that is like, oh, no, we need accommodations. And everybody gets all up in arms about it. And it's because things cost money. That's really the problem. It's like a capitalistic society. So any little difference and you're charged for it, Mm -hmm. which is awful. So I understand parents preferring to not need accommodations for their children and to just make them like all the other kids. But your child might be different. And that is okay. We just need to learn how to advocate for them, how to teach them to advocate for themselves. And then they will have a smoother time in society if they know how to speak up for themselves in whatever way they're able to. So what are some 
tips or recommendations that you typically give uh, parents and or children on how to advocate for themselves? Ooh, tips on advocating. Okay. Well, you cannot advocate for your child unless you know them and you know their strengths and challenges. So if you know that, but I had this one client that the world was just overstimulating for her. The lights, the sun, a new person, a new house. Like when she came in, she was screaming. She held her mother tight. If you heard the scream, you would think that someone was like physically harming her. She was just screaming and wailing. And the mom said, I'm so sorry, Lisa. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, and I said, there's nothing to apologize for. This is a new environment. Your child has never been to my private office. She's never met me before. So I said, when you end up taking her to a new daycare or end up taking her anywhere to the mall, whatever, and anyone gives you a look, most people know to just keep on walking, but should someone give you a dirty look, just say, my child is struggling right now. It's very bright in here. Or they've never been here before. This is new for them. But you could use those words. And as you say those words, your child will hear them. And then when they're old enough or able to speak, they will say that too. This is so bright for me. Put shades on, whatever. So it's really, it's not constantly about apologizing to others about your child. It's about understanding them. Now, if your child does something wrong, if they walk up to someone and slap them, yeah, we're going to apologize. We're going to teach your child to apologize. That's the whole thing. But this is something that is out of your child's control. And that's what I wanted the parents to understand. It's, they're not doing it on purpose. They're not trying to embarrass you. They're not trying to hurt your feelings. You're doing great as a parent. You don't need to apologize for them. So I also told her that she didn't need to shush her. She just needed to hold her. And that's what your child is clearly asking for. She wants to be held by you and she wants to be close to the source that she knows well, that she's familiar with. So I said, like, the shushing, I think, is for me. You want her to be quiet for me. But the screams don't bother me because I know she needs to release them. And seriously, by the second or the third session, she just walked in happily. I, I couldn't believe it. She just, she knew who I was. She knew where we were going. She went right down the stairs, right into my office. And the funny thing is, back when I was doing compliance-based therapy, we would have to shut down those screams right away. So we would do everything we can to calm her down, to keep her quiet, not let her just feel those things. And it would take weeks before the child could stop screaming. Literally, they would, back in the day, they would scream for 45 full minutes. Then they would scream for 30 minutes. So that's progress. Then they would scream for 20 minutes. And very medical, you know, like from here to here to here to here. I'm telling you, with this little girl, we gave her the space to scream and do what she wanted. It only took two sessions. And she just came in quietly and started playing with me. She even made sounds and started talking. She's not someone who talks. Nice. It was just, it's hard for parents to believe that when you provide a safe space for your child, they will try to communicate with you. Because where we as parents, not as therapists, but as parents have this societal pressure put on us that everything is your fault. Everything your child does is a reflection on you. And it's like, they're their own person. And then they have their own challenges. They might have some of the challenges that you had as a child that were beaten out of you or however your parents decided to deal with it. But yeah, they're their own person and we have to help them advocate for themselves. Can you think of an example where you saw a family advocate for themselves and it made a difference? Yeah, there was a kid at school who 
the teacher kept telling me he doesn't understand anything. He doesn't know anything. He's like, basically, he's in his own world is what she told me, which I've seen before, you know. But the my goal, again, I'm always differentiating the, the therapist I used to be compliance-based versus the therapist I am now neurodiversifying. So my goal back in the day would have been to snap him out of this world he's in and bring him back to class. My goal now is to understand where his mind is going and what from the classroom makes him want to go into that world. Like what, not a trigger, but maybe something that just reminds him, like the sunglasses with Garfield earlier. So I went in and I, again, observation is key. So that was one of the big ones. You asked about myths earlier. Yeah. And one big one to me, anyway, and I think it's still travails is that we go in, we assess. You know, and there's no observation time. There's no, no one's going to pay for a professional to come quietly and just watch the child. Like, what kind of work are you doing? But that's the, where really, where the important work is when you're not berating a child with questions, but you're just letting them be and seeing what they do when they're free. No. Anyway, so I, I went into this class and it was such a cute class. And I thought that teacher was really great. And at the way she set up everything, and the kind of games that the kids had, they had like pretend games and real games and cooking and disguises and shit, everything set up for these kids. So this boy comes in and it's always like shoes were always an issue for him. He had a hard time tying his shoes. And so that was always kind of a source of frustration for the whole team. So already you could see that the adults are on edge every time they have to help him because it's like, oh, here he goes again, not tying his shoes. And to me, it's like, I would try to get this kid some Velcro shoes or like some slippers or something. Cause already right off the bat, this is a source of frustration, these running shoes. Now you might think it has nothing to do with communication, but a dysregulated adult cannot help regulate a child. So if everyone is mad right off the bat, I mean, we got to check on these things. That was one thing. I asked the teacher how important it was for him to have shoes in the class. And it's always this whole fire hazard business. And I'm like, some kids really, really can't take shoes or socks. It's like that feeling. And so the whole day, they're just so antsy. That's one thing. So we go into, we get into the class and this boy goes to his table and it's like a group of kids. So I think there's four per table. So he goes to his table and there's three other kids and two of them were playing rock, paper, scissors. And so because he's autistic, he doesn't have the language yet to be like, do you want to play with me? So he goes right in front of one of the children and just like put the rock in his face, you know, and the kid is like, get away from me, you know? So that right there to me, I'm like, oh, that's a language goal right there. Can I play with you or want to play? You know, I'm, I'm like thinking. So again, the observation is very important because it even gives me ideas of what kind of goals to work on. So I could clearly see that this child is not trying to annoy or punch a kid. He's literally saying, can I play rock, paper, scissors with you? But I only know that because I'm observing. And I see this interaction. Anyway, child doesn't want to play with him. He goes to the next kid, puts scissors in her face. And she's like, oh my gosh, which is like, leave me alone in French, you know? So then after attempting to play with two kids, he walks away from his table and starts playing with a little smurf. Of course, the teacher is like, get back to your seat. Now, how did he get there? How did he get to the smurf? Why isn't this child sitting in his spot? He went straight to his spot as he was supposed to, even with the uncomfortable shoes. 
He wanted to engage in a game that all the other kids were playing, but he couldn't because he doesn't have the language or the social skills to do it. He did try. So sometimes the goal is engage with other children, but it's like he is engaging, but not in a way that they're accepting. And so then from there, he got up, left his post, whatever you want to call it, and went to play with a Smurf. And I told the teacher, the Smurf has no expectations of him. The Smurf lets him play with it. So that's why he went there. So I explained that. And she said, oh, I, I didn't see that he tried to play rock, paper, scissors. So I was able to explain to the class that he communicates differently. If he comes to your face with a rock, you could say, oh, you want to play rock, paper, scissors? You know, you mm-hmm. can actually play with it. Now, there's two perspectives here because the children may actually not want to play with it. And that's okay. But I do want them to understand that he's not trying to disturb them, not trying to bother them. And when you teach kids empathy and understanding different forms of communicating, then they are more accepting. And if the teacher that they love so much that they would do anything for, you know, at that age, teachers are like your idols. And the teachers, oh, how sweet. Tommy wants to play rock, paper, scissors with you. Let me tell you, Emily would be like, I love you and just start playing, you know? So it really starts there. But a teacher, not this one in particular, but like, Another teacher, you know, rolling their eyes or, oh, that's Tommy for you. All the kids adopt that. Ugh, classic Tommy, never listening, you know? So again, this is the child that the teacher said doesn't understand anything, doesn't do anything. And I'm like, well, this kid definitely understands where to sit, the fact that people are playing rock, paper, scissors, and the fact that he's not welcome there and went to get a toy. But this child, I spoke to his mother. And when I told her that story, she's like, yep. That's my son. That's exactly him. That's him at the park. That's him, whatever. Like, he really wants to play. He just doesn't know how. That's why he needs a therapist to help him get through it. He doesn't need someone telling him, you don't understand anything. Sit down, do this, do that. So I was like, yeah. So I told the teacher what the mom had sent, that he's actually very playful at home and very communicative. Apparently, he talks to his grandma, Mm -hmm. fully talking. You know, and the, and the teacher just didn't believe it. She was like, it's not possible, Lisa. Like, I've been with him for six months. He hasn't said anything. Whenever he talks, he's just repeating and annoying other kids. And that goes into like gestalt, you know, echolalia, that kind of stuff, which is a clear marker of autism or one of them. I asked the teacher, what if mom is telling the truth? Just hypothetically, what if she's not just defending him blindly? And what if her story is true? Then we want to get that kid into this school, that personality, that whatever. And she was like, okay, well, you know, do your best kind of thing. But I was so proud of this mom because I know some other parents might shy away and be like, oh, he's not talking in school. Okay. And like kind of give him hell at home. Like, why aren't you? Why aren't you? But the mom is like, I don't know what's going on in school, but at home, he talks to grandma. He talked to me. I know he has his challenges. I know whatever, but he tells us. Not in, you know, big, beautiful sentences, but we definitely communicate. So I believed mom straight away. And maybe at the time where I was compliance-based, I may not have believed mom. I don't know. But I'm very much of like, this parent is not lying. So I went back into the class and we did a story time. And one of the things that this boy does is repeat what other people say in the same tone that they say it. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like he's mocking them. But that is another form of communication for him. That's the way he processes. So, for example, you'd be like, what's your name? And he'd be like, what's your name, Tommy? You know, like, he'll just repeat the question and answer it or just repeat. 
So I, I read a story. I don't remember the theme of the story, but there was a moment where there was a swimming pool. And of course, every child in the class that had a swimming pool quickly raised their hand to tell me, I also have a pool at home. Mm-hmm. So one boy raised his hand and I, I keep calling the, the little one Tommy. That's, that wasn't his name, of right. course, but Tommy was there spinning and rolling. And I just said, let Tommy relax his body. Mm-hmm. He needs this. Don't worry about it. You know? And everyone left him be. We didn't yell at him. We didn't kick him out. We didn't force him. I told the teacher. And again, she gave me the whole, well, he does it. Everyone else is going to need to do it. I'm like, no, they don't need to. You could see they're all sitting crisscross applesauce. They're all fine. He cannot. Yeah. Please just let him. And sure enough, he rolled a little bit and he noticed that nobody was yelling at him. He kept on rolling and he sat down. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he sat with his knees up, but anyway, that's besides the point. He was seated. So <laughs> he was seated. He was seated without anyone saying sit down. Right. And that to me is a big one because that's, that's self-regulation, right? Oh, maybe I should sit now. What's the story about? So another little boy raises his hand and says something along the lines of, I have a pool at home. And then this little boy goes, I have a pool at home. I have a pool at home. Exactly the way the boy said it. And the first boy was so annoyed and was like, he always does that. He always like repeats what we say. And I said, yeah, he's listening to you. That's the way he shows he's listening. So if you say something and he repeats it, it's like he's saying, I heard you. And he was like, oh. And I said, you know, when you said, I have a pool at home, I actually repeated it in my head. I was like, oh, Peter says, I have a pool at home. Oh, and then I pictured the pool that you might have. And that's how I listen. I listen in my brain. But some people listen out loud. And they were like, oh. And sure enough, the next girl said something. He repeated it. And the first little boy was like, he's listening to you. It was the sweetest thing. That is a lovely story. And I'm thinking your job takes a lot of time. And you... It requires time to get to know the children, to work through with them. It sounds like you sometimes go to the school, you sit in the class, you talk to the teacher. Who pays for this and how long can you have your service? Okay, great question. It took me a long time to fight for what services are really necessary and what services are kind of a waste of time. Mm -hmm. So everyone is willing to pay for a six-week evaluation like those are the buzzwords you know assessment evaluation diagnosis but no one is willing to pay for an observation mm. or for a parent coaching session people don't see the value in it because they just don't know they know what they know which is what the medical field has taught them mm. like if you don't have a diagnosis what are you even doing and like why is someone just silently watching your kid like you could do that at home and it's like well if you could do it at home then you would know what to do yeah So right now, what I'm talking about, like going into the classrooms, all that stuff, that's part of my job at the school board. So I've advocated for myself when I'm given 10 weeks with a child, I would like one of those, one or two of those weeks to be an observation, maybe one week of an assessment if necessary. But from what I see in the class, I could make quite a few recommendations just off of that. Because honestly, I kept telling my boss that the goal is not to diagnose. The goal is to help the teacher. When the teacher says, I don't know what to do with this child, they're not looking for a 60-page report. They're looking for, give me some tips. What do you want me to do here? And the best way I could do that is not by pulling out the child and testing them with these arbitrary, quote-unquote, standardized tests, which are not standardized on my kids anyway. They're looking for someone to tell them, 
in class, when you're pointing this way, maybe if you did this, the child would be like, oh, that makes more sense to me from the way they think or from what I've seen. So right now, my salary at the school board, which is publicly funded, pays for sessions with the different children that are prioritized by the school. So I choose how I use my time. But in the end, I have to come up with either a progress report or an evaluation report for the child. As long as I could write that up and prove that everything that I did was beneficial to the child and, you know, people understood what to do, then then that's good enough. What I will not do is use nine out of my 10 sessions to assess and evaluate by myself alone with a child and then spend another 10 weeks writing a report. What sorts of questions do you think parents should ask when they are referred to a speech-language therapist? If your child is autistic and you're not into compliance-based therapy, I have to put that as a caveat because some parents do actually want that, you can ask, are you neurodiverse affirming? They should know those terms. If they don't know those terms, they will go look it up and ask themselves yes or no. But the movement was huge and it, it got very, very big during COVID when we were all home doing professional development at home online and seeing all the things popping up. So that's the big question. A hard question that parents ask that we never have the answer to is how long is it going to take? So I would suggest parents not ask that question because there, there is no answer for that. It's, it's really how your child takes the therapy. Do you, how much work you put in as a parent at home, how much they, they're enjoying it. So, so that's a tough one, but the, the neurodiverse affirming one for autistic, um, kiddos, that's a big one. Often parents ask, have you worked with kids, students this age? So I like that question. There was a lady that called me this week and she was like, I have a child. Do you have space? And I was like, I have a few more questions. <laughs> and she was like, well, firstly, do you work with teenagers and do you work with dyslexia? And I was like, I do. She was like, oh, okay, so we can move forward. And she had learned her lesson because she had spoken to other speech therapists and given them the whole rundown of everything going on with her son. And then later mentioned he was 13 and they're like, oh, I don't work past eight years old, yeah. you know? And so it's a, it's good for parents to right away give little markers of what they think is going on. You know, I have a two-year-old that I think is not speaking or not interested in speaking. So it's less questions, but more about knowing what information a speech therapist is going to ask you. That's good to know. I like that a lot. What top tips do you have for navigating the system and not falling through the cracks if you try to get your child with me? Ask, ask right away. So in, if in any setting that your child is in, ask what services are available? What services do you provide at this school? at this establishment, at at this company? What does my insurance cover? So many parents don't know the services they have access to. Mm -hmm. To me, my top tip of not falling through the cracks is ask the question, what services do you offer? Do you offer speech services at this school? How do I get access to that? Because not every system works the same way. So what do you offer? Then you look at the one that you want and then how do I get that? Nice. That's the first question. The other one is... Have all of your documents ready because that's the big one. They just like bury you in paperwork. I'm sorry, we can't do this unless you sign this form. I'm sorry, we can't do this until I get this report. Have it ready. That That is a big, like the bureaucracy is so real. Your child clearly needs help. Everyone has said it. 
but you lost the consent form and you hadn't signed it yet, we are legally not allowed to work with your child until everything is fine, dotted. And I mean, there's so many legal ramifications. So do everything you need to do on your end. It's not to shame anyone, but if you're a very demanding parent, but you're not putting in the work on your end, you're just sending out these demands, nothing will happen. Because you can be as loud as you want, but you don't send us a report or you don't sign a document and our hands are tied. So these forms and documents, where do you get them from? For example, if I have a session with you today, do you have a copy for yourself and you give me a copy? Where are they getting the forms and documents that they should be keeping in hand? Every time you interact with a service point, you receive proof of that? So this is before. This is before you even get a session. So once you're in a session with me, everything's going to be documented. Everything is going to be proved left, right, and center. You can't own a company unless everything is super, super transparent. So where do they get these documents? Basically, what I'm trying to say is don't like rely on verbal conversations. You know, like a teacher or principal will be like, yeah, for sure your child is going to be seen. So many parents have told me that, oh, I was told my child would be seen. Well, did you sign a consent form? Did you get a document that said your child will be seen at this time? No, I didn't get any of that. So we send it to you. If you don't receive it, you have to ask for it. Okay. So if someone tells you your child will be receiving services, you have to know to expect a document, a consent form, something. If you receive nothing, then there, there is no service. That's great clarification. And even, I guess, if your teacher is saying Jimmy is acting up or doing strange things in class. I suppose the teacher also has to document that, make a note, and it goes somewhere that you can get a copy as well. Yeah, exactly. I ask all the questions when I go in. It does happen sometimes. Like, for example, and that's a kind of a misunderstanding, but I'll go into the classroom because I'm helping Tommy. But like Peter over here also needs help. And then the teacher will say, oh, there's a speech therapist in the class. So Peter's mom might think, oh, she's here supporting Peter. Indirectly, I guess by teaching empathy to the whole class, everyone's kind of getting a service, but the mom might think I'm sitting with Peter drilling like the S sound, you know, and that's not what I'm doing. So that has to be clear as well. If the consent form really is more like your child specifically will be focused on, whether in the classroom or one-on-one. So it's, yeah, just get everything in writing. That's really the takeaway here. You mentioned your uh, parent coaching earlier and I, heard the value in that as you were describing it. So what are your recommendations for how people can improve communication with their provider and or their child? Okay. So the child, the first thing is to take away your expectations. Just want, just for a day or two. Just don't ask them or get on them or just like kind of watch what they do when you're not telling them what to do all the time. Just watch the things that they love, the things that bring them joy, the things that frustrate them. Oftentimes, parents have no idea why their kid is screaming. But if they were just in the room two minutes ago, they would have seen that the battery died on the remote or something happened just then and there, but you kind of missed it. And then it always falls on the child to explain themselves. But if the child has a language issue, then frustration's all around. So observing your child when they're, you know, experiencing joy or stress or whatever is one of my top goals, just watching them. Don't say anything. Don't do it in that moment. And when I say don't say anything, I mean that there's this push for verbal language. So a child is like, ah, and you're like, apple, 
apple. You know, you don't give the child the apple unless they say apple. And it's so frustrating because they are clearly communicating that they want the apple. So you just model for them. So they go, ah, and you go, well, and you just show them, I get you, you know, and you keep on modeling the whole word. And I know, again, back to compliance therapy, you just push and push and push the word until they sale and they don't get the apple and that's the big consequence or you give them something that they are able to pronounce and so they always get a cookie but nothing because that's all they could say so that's one big one to just model for kids instead of forcing them to repeat after you because sometimes they're not repeating because they physically cannot they don't have that sound yet so you're asking them to do something that they're just not able to do in that moment it's not right Mm -hmm. so that that's for kids that are really minimal just sounds but another big one, which I know we talked about before we started the, the episode, is sharing stories with children. So often kids come home from school and you say, how was your day? And they say, fine. And it's just so frustrating because you want more. Then you end up asking questions like, what did you do at recess? Did you finish your lunch? You know, they get that a lot. Did you finish your lunch? And they're like, yeah, I ate it all, you know, and and I tell parents, as as silly as it sounds, when you're probing and asking questions about the day, I know what you really want is to know how they felt that day, what they did, who they talked to. That's really what you want to know. But you're asking these direct questions because you know that they're able to answer what they ate or who they played with. So then later when they're trying to tell you about their day, they only go back to those questions you've asked them. How was your day? It was good. I ate my sandwich. Like they'll just go straight to what they've always heard. So I said a better way, which is less pushy, is to just share your day with your child. So just tell them one thing that happened that day. So they come home and you say, oh man, today, this actually happened yesterday. But today, this little black cat like rolled under the car and I had and I had to wait and wait and wait until they crawled out. And then finally I drove off. But that's why I'm late today. So a little story like that. And more often than not, when I give this homework to parents and I talk to them the following week or the following month, whenever we have a follow-up, they say, I really couldn't come up with a story. So I just made something up. So many times they tell me that. And I'm like, that's probably what your child feels. They feel that nothing is interesting enough to share. So they don't share. Or they don't have the language because they've never heard what a day looks like. A day involves other people sometimes, a feeling, a situation, you know, but they've never heard that. They just heard, how was your lunch? Or how was recess? Did your teacher say hi to you? You know, little, these little pointed questions. So yeah, so I told the mom that said she just had to make up a story. I had told her a story that had happened that morning where my daughter woke up and asked for a watermelon. And so I went to the fridge and I realized that the night before we had finished all the watermelon, me and her dad, not her. So in her mind, there was still watermelon in the fridge. And I was so stressed, Nikita. I was like, oh my gosh, how do I explain that? I was panicking. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry, Mila, we don't have any more watermelon. We do have cantaloupe. And she was like, but I wanted watermelon. And I'm like, I could try to buy some more today. Do you want cantaloupe or do you not? Do you just want cereal? She's like, fine, I'll have cantaloupe. And so I cut it and it was all dipped. I told the parents that story and I said, I thought that story was too boring to share. They're like, are you kidding? That was so interesting. That's funny. I thought that's funny. And I said, but that's how kids feel. You think it's just mundane, boring, nobody cares. But where else would your child learn the word panic or freaking out or 
made a mistake, you know, that, that kind of vocabulary. So I kind of subtly encourage them to, to try to think deep of something that happened to them that day, anything as boring as they think. And the dad said, which I loved so much. He said, I woke up this morning and I realized that I was very, very stressed because I had too much work to do. So instead of going right on my computer, I just took a walk. And the mother, like his wife looked at him, like you took a walk. And he was like, yeah, I just, I'm not outside. Like I took a walk around the house. I literally just walked in circles. And she's like, oh yeah, I saw you do that. He's like, yeah, and I was just trying to plan. What am I going to do? How am I going to start? But then I wasn't so stressed anymore. And I went and worked. Mm-hmm. And I said, believe you me, you tell that story to your child. They're going to know the word stress. And you might find them walking one day in the house and being like, I'm too stressed, dad. You know, like just using that kind of language just because they heard it. So yeah, that's one big recommendation I give to parents. Share stories about your real life with your kids, no matter how boring you think it is. And my top three like targets I want in your story, I want you to have another character in the story outside of you. And I want an emotion attached. Like I panicked, I freaked out. Not happy, sad, mad, not those old ones that kids already know. Like deeper ones. I was exhausted. I was frustrated. I was anxious. Like those are the words your kids need because these are the things they're feeling and they don't have the language for. And like a, a situation has to happen. So you've got a character, you've got a situation or a problem, I guess, and an emotion. The emotion is the most important to me because it explains like why I felt or what was going on in my body at the time. Oh, that's that. Okay. With the provider, communication with the provider. Please do not make any assumptions with your provider. No provider is the same. So don't think, oh, the last one stayed with me an hour after each session and chatted with me about how it's going in life. Ask them, is this something I can do with you? They'll say yes or no. You know, sometimes if you're the last patient of the day, they might say, sure, we could chat. But if you're the first one and they have back-to-back clients, it's an unrealistic expectation. So that's a very big one. And I know for me, there are some clinics that charge like 45 minute sessions versus 60 minute sessions versus, I don't have that. I have like a session fee and every session is 45 minutes and the other 15 minutes is notes on the child or a discussion if the parent wants to talk a bit, but it's all within the same hour time frame. So that sometimes catches parents off guard because they never asked. So we have our session and then at 45 minutes, I stop the session and the parents like, oh, you have 15 minutes left, you know, things like that. So it is really important. I mean, I have as much as I can in writing, but like not everybody reads everything. And I know not everyone has the time for that, but do not make assumptions about the expectations on either party. One, one big one I had, if your child is like four, four or five and under, a parent must be present for the Zoom session either in the room or like in the session with us, but they cannot be alone in a room with a computer. I need a parent there. So the stuff like that, like I, I'm getting better at being clear with parents. I think I was a little more nervous to like set ground rules, but I'm getting better with it. And parents are still kind of navigating the fact that different providers offer services differently. So do not make assumptions and ask ask the question. I think that will clarify a lot of miscommunications. I love those tips. They do make a lot of sense. <laughs> and they're very important to, to clarify up front, not only with providers, but I think in all, all our relationships. 
We're wrapping up, Lisa. Do you have any closing thoughts? I'm just really happy that you invited me. I think I think your podcast is so cool and so informative. And I'm, I said it at the beginning, but I'm really honored that that you think that this information is going to benefit more people than just the speech world. I'm just very grateful to be here. And I, and I get to just be myself. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm honored that you're that you chose to be here. I really appreciate it. I think your podcast is great too. As I told you, I love how empathetic and thoughtful you are. And I hope all our listeners take that up as well. So uh, thank you very much for coming to the Good Health Cafe today. It was a pleasure to have you. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Some key takeaways were... A speech therapist cannot force a child to speak, but they can help you understand how to improve communication with your child. Observation is very important. Teaching children how to interact with their differently abled peers is also important. Share stories about your day with your children. And professional reports do not need to be hurtful to be effective. Please note that while Lisa focuses on autism in her practice, she wanted to be sure that our listeners knew that speech-language pathologists deal with many other issues such as stuttering, articulation, language delays, dyslexia, and aphasia. They are also involved with deaf and hard-of-hearing individuals in close collaboration with audiologists, and they provide augmentative and alternative communication tools to individuals with severe communication disorders who have lost their capacity to communicate. As usual, if you would like to learn more about The Good Health Cafe, please check out our website, www.thegoodhealthcafe.com, follow us on social media, or sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.